Welcome to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. With over 150 years of experience and deep industry knowledge, Weber Wenzel is the leading full-service law firm on the African continent. Good day and welcome to all of you who are listening in. My name is Giles White. I'm a senior advisor in the Africa Group at Weber Wenzel, and I will be hosting today's panel discussion on the role and responsibility of boards in the COVID crisis. I will be joined by three legal experts with a great deal of experience in corporate governance. Christa Els is the senior partner at Weber Wenzel. Madeleine Berger is a partner in Weber Wenzel's corporate and M&A team based in Johannesburg. And Tom Shropshire, the global head of Linkletter's US practice and a corporate partner based in London and New York. Christo, Tom and Madeleine, welcome and thank you for joining me. A special word of welcome from me to my old friend Tom. He may not thank me for saying this, but we first worked together on a South African deal more than 20 years ago. Tom has, uh, I should say perhaps more recently, also worked with Madeleine and Christo. My first group of questions is centered around positive leadership and the composition of boards. There is some evidence that organizations enhancing their reputations in the crisis have been led by strong boards, which have listened to and communicated empathetically with stakeholders. The tone from the top has perhaps never been more critical. I'm going to pose two questions here for Tom and Christo to answer from their respective international and African perspectives. Here's my first question. Could you both comment on this leadership role in setting values and demonstrating the culture of your own organizations and what you see more generally amongst clients and other companies in the market? Turning to you first, Tom. Sure. Thanks very much, Giles, and and thanks for inviting me uh, today. I mean, I think tone from the top continues to be uh, literally at the top of everyone's agenda. Um, I think from a regulatory perspective, uh, global regulators have been very clear that everything starts with the tone from the top. And I think that's true within our organizations as well. And I think only becomes exacerbated in times of uncertainty. You know, in those periods, people are kind of looking for that beacon light to send them forward into the night, so to speak. And I think the tone and the direction of leadership um, is what people will look to. And there's a real opportunity in that sort of environment to really live and exhibit the core values and skill sets um, that the organization needs to have. And and also, I think it's really quite important um, that the tone from be from the top because people will not have the ability to interact in a day-to-day basis and the way that they have before. So very much what you say, how you portray that and how you hold yourself out is absolutely one and is fundamental, I think, to getting any organization through uh, a crisis or challenge like this. Thanks very much, Tom. Christo, what's your perspective? Yeah, Giles, I absolutely agree with Tom. Certainly in times of, of a crisis and certainly this pandemic is is one, there's much more greater need for direction and assurance almost from a firm or a company's leadership. And whether that comes from the board, the chairman, the CEO, or just leadership in the organization itself. I think what people need to to feel almost from the leadership is not only direction, but a sense of togetherness and a sense of trust. I think that's really important. Even in certain circumstances, the, the CEO or the board may not have the answers. 
but it's it's the ability to um, engage with your organization in such a way that you can say to them, listen, we, you know, I may not know the answer for this, uh, you know, things are developing at speed, but when we know the answer, we'll come back to you. That kind of trust relationship, I think, is really important in times of crisis. Thank you very much, Christo. And listening to you both, it seems to me that the ability of boards to lead effectively depends on the quality of their members. There is increasing emphasis on the positive role all directors can play. For example, fundamental industry knowledge and true diversity of views are essential in representing the wider interests that board must consider. The crisis has meant that boards should take a hard look at their own composition. What are you seeing in this respect? Christo, why don't you kick off this one? You know, as you know, in South Africa, over the last couple of years, there's always been a very strong focus on the need for diverse boards. And boards in South Africa are measured on, you know, the ability to attract uh, a diverse board. But people forget sometimes that diverse boards do not necessarily guarantee diverse views. So it's really important for me that boards uh, come to the conclusion or, or realize, I suppose, that you know, diversity and inclusion really has two elements. And the second element is incredibly important. It's the inclusion element. So what I am seeing people are experiencing through this crisis and, and also in the last week or so, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, etc. that real importance of fostering a culture of inclusion, not only um, encouraging diverse views, but encourage an openness to really hear and listen to people's different perspectives. Even if that sometimes means, of course, that meetings may overrun and you know you can't keep to set times because there's much more debate. I think if boards encourage that, they'll ultimately get to a point where the decisions they take are much more rounded and they have a much better ability to address the, the interest of you know all the stakeholders in a company. Thank you, Christo. And I think you make a critical point there that diversity and inclusiveness is not confined to members of your board. Tom, I wondered if you could give us uh, your angle on this. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, I absolutely agree with what Christo uh, has articulated. And I think it's interesting because I think that when we moved into COVID, you know, many of our clients were just trying to get their arms around how things were affecting their business, how their markets were changing, what their customers were doing. So that's not a time in which you say, oh, let me reflect on changing the board or the executive management team. No, that's the time you say, actually, let me make sure I'm maximizing what we have. But now I think as we move through this this period and this crisis, not to say that I can predict the end of it, but people are starting to look a little bit further out and see how their markets are changing, see how their customers are changing the, the expectations that people have, whether or not the geographies that they're in make sense. And I think it's a natural time to also kind of look at the skill set of that board, because I think that, you know, board cycles are long, even though boards, you know, do put themselves up to vote, you know, on an annual basis in many jurisdictions. Um, it is a long cycle to, to change over boards. Um, and I think that as people think about what that new world looks like in a post-COVID environment, whether it looks the same or looks completely different, one has to look at a responsible chair will be looking at the composition of that board. And, and what I can just say is I think the world is getting more complex and, and, and it's almost like a four um, uh, uh, degree um, 
uh, chessboard, you know, in a sense it's a 4D chessboard. And I think you need to have those different skill sets in different ways. And so that diversity of experience, that diversity of point of view, perspective, it's fundamentally important, I think will only be more important. And I think because of the nature of change that, that the markets are seeing, because the ways in which the companies are going to have to think about how they deliver value to shareholders and what that value actually means to the shareholders, the customers, the governments, um, uh, I think they have to think about rebalancing and changing their board to reflect that. So having a reflective board um, um, that reflects the markets, the value sets, the ambitions is fundamentally important. And I think many companies, if they honestly assess that, might see some need for change. Thank you both. Uh, And Tom, those final comments of yours about having a reflective board are a good segue into my final group of questions, which is around what has become known as the stakeholder inclusive approach. There has been some commentary that the COVID-19 crisis may result in companies perhaps abandoning the international trend to a more stakeholder inclusive approach that is acting in the interests of employees, customers, suppliers, communities, and the environment, as well as shareholders. Instead, the concern was that they may, at this extraordinarily challenging time, go back to focusing on pure economic fundamentals. My sense is that, in fact, COVID-19 has emphasized the continuing importance of wider interests in shaping decisions that made now may define the long-term reputation of companies. For example, the way companies are handling the job security, remuneration, and well-being of employees is seen as fundamental to the perception of their values and future prospects. And Madeleine, I'm going to turn first to you. What is your view of the duties and responsibilities of boards in this crisis setting? And while you comment on that, perhaps you could also comment on the shift in duties that may take place at a time of financial distress. Thank you, Giles. You referred to the move to a more stakeholder-inclusive approach, which is, of course, the counter to the Anglo-Saxon shareholder-centric approach, which has been followed in South Africa, well, at least up until now. Now, what this means is that in normal circumstances, directors owe certain duties to their company. So directors stand in a fiduciary relationship, as we call it, to the company alone, and they owe no fiduciary duties to the company's shareholders individually or to its creditors or employees. Having said that, though, Giles, always remember that although the company and the duty is owed to the company, action towards creditors or employees or the environment for that matter, which defeat the interests or success of the company would of course constitute a breach of the duty to act in the interests of the company. The so-called normal approach then also applies in the COVID-19 or a crisis scenario. They still owe their duties to the company, but on the basis that other stakeholders should be taken into consideration if failing to do so would not serve the interests of the company. Charles, you also asked me to comment on the shift in duties that may take place at a time of financial distress. Generally, your duties stay the same, but there are four aspects uh, that you need to bear in mind. First, we have this notion of reckless trading in our law. A director is not allowed to carry on the business of a company recklessly. Now, we've received many queries during this crisis as to whether directors can be said to be trading recklessly now on COVID 
or by not applying for business rescue because they are finding them in dire straits, should everyone be running around applying for business rescue? Or the other side of the spectrum, are we now allowed to act recklessly, which is of course ludicrous. Remember that reckless trading is when you have a total disregard for your consequences. So you know the company will not be able to pay a debt, but notwithstanding you let the company incur this debt. This is not what is happening necessarily in COVID-19. The fact that the circumstances are dire does not necessarily render your act reckless. And it's our view that directors' actions will be judged knowing the difficult circumstances they find themselves in. Now, secondly, in this period, once a company is in financial distress, boards have one of two choices. You either put the company into business rescue or you let all your, all your stakeholders know this situation that you find yourself in. And then lastly, and I think few people know this, is that once a company is placed into business rescue, the board really steps back and the business rescue practitioner steps into their shoes and in fact have all the duties as if he is the director. Directors then, interestingly so, may only act as directed by the business rescue practitioner. So they really become instruments of the business rescue practitioner and cannot act differently, even if they believe they would be acting in the best interest of the company or its stakeholders. Thank you very much for that very interesting and informative answer, Madeleine. And I'm going to turn back now to uh, Tom and Christo. Tom, I'll direct this at you first. And Madeleine touched on this uh, in her answer. Lawyers sometimes present the position as a binary one. Boards must choose whether they are acting in the interests of shareholders or whether they are acting in the interests of a wider set of stakeholders. What's your view? Tom first. Sure. I mean, I think that's an interesting and timely question. And certainly we've seen, I think, a, a movement, and at least it's people how, how people articulate it. So, for example, in the U.S., um, although people will will note that there's been no change to um, the definition of, of the fiduciary duties, for example, under Delaware, uh, last year we saw uh, a, for the first time an articulation of how to uh, apply those duties and moving away from the idea that somehow share value is the only proxy or the maximization of that shareholder value is the only only objective of the of the board. In, indeed, that had never been the case. But I think that people and particularly practitioners articulated that actually the wider set of values, the wider set of objectives, uh, whether that be from a customer, from an employee, from markets or, or governments or whatever it may be, as long as those decisions are taken with the view towards informing the best outcome for shareholders, it absolutely is uh, appropriate um, to look at those things. It's not always just a single uh, dynamic that comes to play. And I think many of us who, who, who've advised uh, companies have advised that for a while, that you have the ability to take into account these broader uh, sets of uh, influences when coming to a decision about what the best course of action is uh, for the company and its shareholders. And I think we also saw that in the UK as well, uh, as they thought about how their fiduciary duties, and that's not surprising because I think the entire way in which the world has created expectations on companies and the way that companies have responded to those expectations born out of the last financial crisis and I think only doubled down in the context of COVID 
um, a really force a director or a board of directors to take into account a wider set of considerations when coming to their uh, decision making. So I, I do not think by any stretch it is one or the other. I don't think it ever has been. But but certainly, um, I think we are in a stage where people widely recognize that to be the case now. It's all of the things, not just one or the other. Thank you, Tom. And Krista, do you have a uh, different view to that? No, Giles, I think it's absolutely right. I think it's it's uh, it influences one another, apart from the fact that, of course, uh, certain stakeholders may influence the decisions of the shareholders itself. You know, we now see activist shareholders themselves, which will drive ethical investment choices. So I think that's a factor. And then, of course, you know, the market reaction to the decisions of a, what a company takes would impact your reputation, your brand, potentially the sales of the company, etc. So all of those things, I think, are relevant and the board would need to take into consideration all of those factors uh, because they all play into the interests of shareholders. Thank you very much, Krista. And now I'm going to move to the final question of this session. And I'm going to direct that to each of you. And if I could ask you to uh, answer it in the sequence of Madeleine, Christo, and then finally Tom. What long-term changes in board responsibilities and roles do you see coming into effect? And what should boards be doing now to position themselves for these future changes? Madeleine. From my side, Giles, uh, you know, if I look at the movement in the UK, the latest act provides that a director must act in a way that will promote the success of the company. So rather the same as ours, but then where ours stops there, theirs expressly continues that the board must do so having regard to the long-term consequences of decisions, employees, etc. Now, one could argue that this is already part of our common law too, but I do believe that boards will be required to even more so now clearly demonstrate going forward that they have in fact considered all these different interests with the aim of serving the success of the company for the sake of shareholders. So my view is that directors would certainly be well advised to include in their membership people who can talk to these issues and to empower boards by obtaining advice from outside on what it means to be a good corporate citizen and in acting in the best interest of the company, which of the other matters, as in the UK Act, should be considered before making a final decision. Thank you very much, Madeleine. Krista? Yeah, Giles. Perhaps I'm going to be a little bit controversial, not only talk about the matters that the board must uh, take into consideration, but also the makeup and composition of the board. I think there should be greater emphasis on regular rotation of non-executive directors, and I think we're going to see that in years to come. I think that worldwide um, the trend is going to become more focused on non-executive directors sitting on fewer boards uh, and then getting much more involved in really understanding a company's business to look at, as, as we articulated earlier, not only the current circumstances, but clearly into the future as well. But I think that also means the consequence of that is that non-executive directors may need to ultimately be better compensated for the job that they do in a company, provided, of course, that they add real value to the interests of the company. Thank you very much for that, uh, Christo. Actually, I very much agree with those comments on the role of non-executive directors, I think it will be critical in the future that they are given the freedom to actually demonstrate their skills and sector expertise in a meaningful way in board discussions and in the way boards conduct themselves and engage with their stakeholders. Tom, uh, do you want to close off uh, this discussion by some final comments on that last question? Sure, sure. And I mean, I, I absolutely agree with, with Madeline and particularly around 
the ability to evidence, for example, the range of things that they've considered. I think just just bringing a slightly different perspective on it, I think that, um, you know, the world that we're living in now, and particularly the way in which it's unfolded for many companies, particularly globally, where the government has provided them support through this first period of COVID, and many companies have taken it, whether that's through furloughing schemes or or accessing the capital markets. Um, and, and in my experience, nothing is free. Um, so in other words, I think that companies should be prepared for where they have taken that support for the government, but the government also to have a voice in terms of how they think about structuring their uh, their way out of COVID response. And when they think about quote unquote synergies and whether that's hiring or firing or, or making people redundant, um, they may not necessarily have the free reign uh, that they think they have. And I think that that to me is something that they need to think quite carefully about uh, when responding. And of course, the government's not going to do it directly, but there may be indirect pressure. And I think also societal expectations about how companies deal with employees, how they deal with their customers, all of those things actually will start to bring these points to bear around how they fill their fiduciary duties. So I think Thinking about all of those things uh, will be a change for the boards, and I think it's going to come sooner rather than later, particularly in the context of an unwind. I guess the other two things I would just say is, in addition to thinking about that composition and balance, the point I think that we made at the outset and I think has been been reinforced is I do want to come back to this point about reflective leadership. I think the way that companies look at themselves, I think the way that employees look at their their executives, the way that consumers look at the brands that they're buying. And if you take into account how what we're seeing in the streets, so to speak, I think having the ability for a company to say, look, we reflect the value set, we reflect what it is that you as a consumer are looking for from a brand. And we're able to evidence that not only in the quality of our product, but also the quality of our thinking and our board. I think that's going to be the thing that's going to be fundamental going forward. And what worked in 1980, 1990, 2000s isn't necessarily what's going to work in 2020, 2030, 2040. Thank you very much, Tom, and thank you to all of you. I'd just like to um, conclude by saying that what has struck me about this discussion has been that it has not centered on the avoidance of liability. This discussion has been about how boards positively embrace true leadership and generate trust and respect amongst their people and their wider stakeholders. That brings our discussion on the role and responsibility of boards in the COVID-19 crisis to an end. I would like to thank Madeleine, Christo and Tom for sharing their insights and our listeners for joining us. And Tom, see you for that Cape glass of wine in the next few months, I hope. This has been Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. Our executive producer is Paula Jones. This podcast is produced for Weber Wenzel by volume. I'm your host, Giles White. And thank you for listening. You have been listening to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. You can find and subscribe to the podcast on all major platforms. For more expert legal insights and updates, visit WeberWenzel.com.